Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Claire Bottini. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And today we're here with Olivia Simons. Thank you for being here, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Olivia, you are a master student in biology. Is that right? Yes, I'm a second year master's student in Dr. Amanda Mearing's lab. Amazing. What don't you tell us what you are about and what is your research? Well, um, right now what I'm studying is the genetic basis of female receptivity within Drosophila. So to put that more simply, um, I'm studying within fruit flies what allows females to decide whether or not they want to mate with a certain uh, male. Is it gene the only factor that affects how the female um, decide if they want to mate? Yeah, so we can have quite a few different factors, whether they're environmental or based on their history. What I look at in particular is um, the difference between two closely related species and what causes their females to act differently when presented with a suitable mate. So I look at two uh, sister species, Drosophila melanogaster and Drosophila stimulans. These are both fruit fly species. And an interesting thing about these two uh, species is that even though their genes are very closely, um, very highly conserved and similar, there is a key difference within a gene that we believe is um, responsible for female receptivity or more simply put, the, um, the gene that is causal to females deciding whether or not to, to um, mate with a male. That, that's kind of interesting that you'd have like a genetic basis for um, you know, that kind of behavior in the females. Um, I guess I'm wondering, genes aren't necessarily expressed everywhere. Um, they're often selectively expressed in one type of cell or, or another. Um, the gene you're looking at, I guess, is there a particular gene you're looking at? Which it, what is it? And if, if so, where is it? Yeah, so um, previous work in our lab has identified a specific candidate gene um, to be causal for this uh, female receptivity or this behavior that I'm interested in. Um, so this gene is actually, it's a specific transcript of a very complex gene called fruitless. So I'm looking at a transcript that has not been heavily studied before the work done in my lab, but we have identified um, not, not only where it is expressed, but also the, the stages of development that it is expressed. So we find that this gene is highly expressed within the uh, central nervous system in the Drosophila, as well as highly expressed during pupation. So throughout development, we don't know too much about the function of this gene other than the overall class or the family of genes is um, a, a DNA, it's a transcription factor with a DNA binding domain. So when we look at the nervous system or the central, the nerves, the neurons within Drosophila females, we can see that they are actually sexually dimorphic from the male neurons. So they have anatomical differences between the male and the female brains. And this gene is part of the um, sex determination hierarchy that is 
causal for these differences. And we think that it may actually also be um, responsible for this sex-specific behavior, and in this case, female re uh, receptivity or female rejection behaviors. Are you saying that these, these, um, these neurons uh, both make the females female and uh, help in this particular type of female behavior? So they do work in the overall hierarchy of... Um, um, so the gene I'm studying is fruitless. Um, and then the neurons, some of the neurons that I'm interested in are double sex neurons. So we know that the expression of this gene is, it's, it's quite um, pandurally, it's quite expressed um, across the, the eyes, the brain, different uh, tissues and regions within the brain, as well as down the, the ventral node course. So there are quite a few um, cell types that do express this, this um, gene. However, we are trying to elucidate in my project how, um, which tissues that this expression is critical for developing this behavior. So right now we uh, know that when we knock down the entire body, um, I'm using a gene expression uh, approach um, to, that is a very cool, I'm using the GAL4 UAS system, which is a very uh, unique tool in Drosophila and it is derived from yeast. And it allows us to, using a two component system, express uh, alter gene expression. So using this system, I'm going to knock down this gene of interest in different tissue subsets, um, specifically different neuron subsets to see if I can narrow down um, which tissues are critical for the expression of this gene to create this behavior. So right now we know that if we knock down this gene across the entire body, we can alter the receptivity. So we can make females less receptive to mates from their own species. We haven't been able to um, investigated as far in their sister species stimulants. Um, but in my project, that's where we're hoping to advance a little bit more, um, looking at the interesting behavioral uh, phenomenon that we see in uh, hybrid females produced from these sister species. So I have several questions for you. Maybe on a more uh, behavioral point of view, uh, what does a uh, reprodu uh, reproductive receptivity looks like? Absolutely. So um, when we look at Drosophila and courtship in general, we think about courtship primarily in terms of the males and their actions. Um, they're actively chasing after they are um, doing a wing song. They'll be tapping and orienting towards the female. At the end of courtship, copulation occurs. And so when we think about female receptivity, um, it's an active uh, response that the female has to the male's courtship advances, where she ceases rejection behaviors and will actually, um, her vaginal plates will open. <laughs> And uh, they, she will cease uh, evading uh, his courtship, stop running away from him, and actually allow copulation to occur. So that's why I find it so interesting to study female receptivity when the female is being the, the choosy counterpart of the two. The males will readily 
can court females from either species, um, whether it's a melanogaster or a simulans female. Um, but the females are what comes down to being the choosy partner of the two. So I find that very interesting because it's a great candidate for um, things like speciation and behavioral isolation when we're looking at um, concepts like those. Um, that you mentioned, you mentioned speciation. That that kind of uh, feeds into my next press question pretty well. Um, I, I'm I'm wondering, you know, what it, <laughs> it's kind of hard to wrap your head around what a species is really. Uh, when when thinking about these two species, you're saying you're you're calling them two different things, but really somehow they're able to also um, produce offspring, like hybrid offspring together. Um, so, so can you give, give us an understanding of like <laughs> wh what is a species really, and and yeah. how come how come these two species sort of they can have babies together, whereas like you know humans can't do that with any other species that I know of. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So. When we, when we think about species, we usually think, compare it to ourselves, right? Us versus a goldfish. We're obviously different species. You can tell because we have different environments. We have different genetics. Um, when we look at Drosophila species, sometimes the details become much more minute. And we can look at factors um, such as when we put these individuals together, are their offspring fertile? So um, for the definition of these two species, they have very similar genetics, very similar morphologies. And I even mentioned the males have similar courtship behaviors. So there's quite a few species concepts that would not be readily available um, for the definition of these species, but we can use the biological species concept knowing that the um, when we cross together a female melanogaster and a male stimulans um, individual, they produce a female. They only produce females, interestingly, due to some genetic incom incompatibility that we see, see. So a common consequence of interspecies mating is um, sterile hybrids or um, male uh, lethality for example. So we see both of those um, consequences present when we have this inter, uh, interspecies mating um, within these two Drosophila. So when we look at these females, they're genetically half simulans and half melanogaster. But phenotypically, in terms of their behavior, they act closer to the melanogaster females. So it's interesting when we look at these two species and they're um, the product of them, their mating, we can see that there is some form of genetic dominance based off of, or genetic dominance of this behavior. Um, so I guess to go back to your question about how do we define a species, it really depends on the context. Um, so you can, use a gen you can use genetics to define a species based on genetic similarity. You can look at um, reproductive units. So can this can this pairing work in terms of producing a fertile offspring? Um, you can use morphological characteristics, uh, which is common to many like birds or butterflies. So yeah, it really depends on the context. So in this context, we're looking at the reproductive units in terms of do they produce um, successful fertile offspring? It's interesting. 
So your study is on gene. So you have two species with two different behavior for uh, reproduction, uh, reproductive receptivity. Does each of the species have different expression of the same gene? And what is the expression of the uh, of a hybrid then? So that's a really interesting question. Um, in terms of, we've done a neural mapping with uh, fluorescence recently to identify where in uh, melanogaster females, this gene is expressed. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to do that type of uh, high value or, or high throughput analysis for uh, the neuron, uh, for the, excuse me, the expression pattern of it within the hybrid and the simulans females. Um, a difficulty that does exist is that the same systems we have for melanogaster don't necessarily exist for simulans. So um, I can study using the GAL4 UAS system within hybrid females, um, but it becomes more difficult to study within simulans females uh, due to limitations with the plasmids that have been developed and things like that. I guess can I, I just want to keep going with the the musing about the species the species story i mean i think it's a really um uh i guess a relatively novel thing to do to have multiple species drosophila is like a common model organism um but really i should say drosophila melanogaster because most fly labs will just work with melanogaster and it's kind of cool that you're working with different uh species of drosophila so I'm really interested to to keep digging on that question, but I I guess my question is um, not necessarily something pertinent exactly to your work, but it building off this idea of differences in species, um, why why would <laughs> is there any benefit in in having an ability to produce hybrids? Like, is there is there evolutionarily why would you why would you want to be able to have a, a an offspring that that's like just females for some reason and also they're infertile? Like, is that is there something some proposed reason why you would want to be able to do that sometime? Immediately, what comes to mind would be thinking about um, something on a similar thread to heterozygote uh, competitive advantage, where being able to mix distinct gene pools effectively and still, still being able to um, produce offspring successfully could produce a competitive advantage, right? The, the more diversity you have within a gene pool, the better your chances are um, at acquiring a beneficial mutation. However, um, what you're discussing, it actually does happen, right? So that's how some species end up merging over time. Um, so species can diverge. Um, you know, you imagine two species in a forest get physically separated over time. They will diverge, acquire different mutations, and at some point over time, they will no longer be reproductively compatible. We can have the opposite happen as well. By chance, you could have species become more genetically closer. If the environment becomes more restrictive, you could have certain adaptations being more preferable versus others, having that happen in two communities in the same way. Um, 
perform trying to perform in the same environment could acquire the same mutation, similar mutations and over time merge. So it depends on the selective pressures in the areas. So when we're looking at these lab lines that are severely uh, heavily maintained within the lab have, um, you know, we're actively trying to not have them readily mutate. We don't have selective pressures on them. So when we're looking at those and thinking about, well, if we have this divergence in the behavior, what is the advantage? I would think the advantage in that case becomes um, if you have a variation in the selectivity of the females in terms of their receptivity, you're going to um, potentially restrict or open up your pool of mates more or less, right? So in times of low um, mate um, density, it may be more beneficial to have um, a more receptive female to more a female that's more receptive to more males versus in times where you can be more selective because there's um, plenty of males comparatively, you could then um, potentially be more choosy because it's not going to affect your relative fitness detrimentally. And that's all just hypothetical thinking about. It seems feasible. It sounds like there's some basis for that and some, you know, precedent at least. So um, that seems like an interesting idea and a good way to, to frame your studies uh, on two different Drosophila species. Um, can we maybe, can you enlighten us a little bit on how you came to this lab, how you ended up here at Western even, uh, <laughs> studying these, studying these, uh, these species of Drosophila? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I... I really started to love genetics back in high school. So I'm from Kingston. So it may seem uh, strange that I came all the way to Western, but um, Western's genetics program for undergrad really, uh, it, it, I thought it was stellar, the amount of hands-on experience you get in terms of molecular work and the, the real, the breadth of the courses you can take um, really interested me. Um, as well as being able to specialize in an undergraduate science degree, I find is quite unique. Um, at least when I started my undergrad, it was um, not sure too much now about these days. But um, I started in uh, my undergrad in genetics at Western. And in my fourth year, I actually took up an honors thesis project, which is um, for those not familiar with Western, it is a sort of like a mini master's project you get to do in your fourth year worth some additional credits. And it really gives you an idea of what it's like to have your own research project and get data and really work through the process yourself. So after doing that, I was kind of sold on research and loved the idea of continuing on in Dr. Maring's lab. So I actually started with Dr. Maring in my fourth year and have continued on with female receptivity through to my master's. Interesting. So did you did the continuation of your undergrad project then or did you completely change projects between both? So it is a continuation, yeah. So I, I added on some additional components for my um, undergraduate project and it just became a, a much bigger project than initially anticipated. It initially started with just looking at um, 
the female receptivity um, between the two species. And now I'm actually trying to narrow down to where, um, where the expression is critical for the development of this behavior. So really fine tuning it to hopefully just a small subset of neurons. If I can jump on that, I was very curious about the technique you use, because I, I don't know much about genetic, but I heard about knockout where you can completely suppress the expression of a gene. For me, I thought it was throughout the entire organism, the entire individual. I didn't know you could do that on a specific tissue. How does that work? How do yeah. you do that? So a great thing about using Drosophila melanogaster as a model is we have these very powerful gene expression tools that we can use to modify genes of interest. So we know where my gene of interest is expressed. Um, primarily, it's, it's focused on the neurons. So what I'm using is I'm using different neuron drivers to then target my knockdown. So using a two-component system, we can pair GAL4 um, gene drivers. So that's just a protein um, that is going to be expressed at that genes region. We can use that to allow a modification to occur, which knocks down the expression of my gene of interest. So that allows us to only knock down the gene where that um, non-native protein is expressed. So that with that, we get some tissue specificity to our knockdown. It's kind of interesting that we can use, I mean, we mix and match with species. It goes to show, I mean, truly we are evolved from one, <laughs> from something similar on this planet because we can take a gene from another organism like yeast and put it in a fly and they can just make it. Um, but I guess it's a, uh, uh, a part of the tool that the GAL4 doesn't do anything normally uh, and that only Absolutely. when you have these two parts does it come together and uh, and, and, uh, and change expression. So um, that's, that's one of the really interesting parts about Drosophila I find as a whole is the um, underlying pathways that are just conserved um, and waiting to be activated almost um, for us geneticists to just manipulate for our our own curiosity is there is there any i guess this is kind of a weird thing nobody's i'm sure nobody's planning on some species hybrid with humans but i mean it's something we all often look to as a, a using a sort of a model organism um, is there any instance where you where you where people are interested in modifying female receptivity genetically in humans or in other organisms at all? <laughs> so we can have successful nights out. Um, potentially, I could think it could be applicable to, um, so this gene is heavily conserved across many different insects in many different taxa. So potentially, if you had an instance of endangered, um, you know, where you have to breed um, individuals in captivity due to an endangered status or threatened status. And I know that um, some cases that can be um, breeding in captivity and artificial insemination in general can be difficult. So perhaps in instances like that, I like to think of it more from a perspective of just trying to understand biology and 
science and genetics and the complexity of it, trying to understand what this gene does, because it is a heavily concerned gene, conserved gene across many different organisms. So if it's conserved that heavily, probably to something important. So let's try to figure it out. So, so far, this is what we think it's leading, what, what our uh, data has led us towards, female receptivity, but never know where the future would take us. Do you know if uh, this gene that is conserved across species have the same effect across species? I'm trying to think if, because I know there have been many gene expression studies done within flies to see the effects of um, altering different parts of the gene within flies. Um, but in terms of other insects, I don't know too much just because um, the same genetic tools don't necessarily exist. So it'd be hard to do these same types of studies. But um, most of the studies have been done in regards to male courtship behavior. Um, so we're actually kind of starting the research at looking into female receptivity and looking at this alternative um, uh, transcript. There's not too many, uh, not too many other labs with ongoing research into the same subject, unfortunately. So still a large field to to discover and continue research on. Mm -hmm. well, I'd say I mean, I'd say it's not necessarily that unfortunate because sometimes what you work on as a graduate student, you're you're perpetually looking over your shoulder because you're worried. Uh, there's a million other labs, maybe they're bigger that are studying something similar and you're worried they're going to like stumble upon a discovery that's along the lines of what you're doing and make your work redundant. So uh, if what you're doing is very novel, then that's in some ways kind of a, a relief in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a, a nice little silver lining. Um, uh, with that in mind of like, you know, where, what studies you're doing and what niche you're going to be in, uh, what, where do you see yourself? Uh, in the future in terms of research, if, if research at all? Yeah, so I have been very interested in the speciation side of my project, and that has led me to be a little more interested in ecologically, ecologically based uh, genetics. So I am thinking of actually transitioning into a PhD with uh, Beth McDougall-Shackleton looking at birds and population genetics. So I'm very excited for the future and what that brings potentially well getting some field work in will be exciting that seems cool if anyone wants to continue follow your research or follow what you're doing where do you advise them to uh, to ask for more information absolutely um people can reach out to me via email at o s i e m o n s at uw.ca or at Olivia Simons um, on Instagram. Awesome. I think we are just getting out of time. So Olivia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Claire Bottini, and my co-host was Ariel Frame. We've been speaking with Olivia Simons, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you would like to be involved in the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. 
You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. And you can also find all of our episodes on our website at greatcast.ca or on podcasts like uh, Podbeam, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you and have a good night. Bye.